So I'll begin reading in uh, verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Many of us are familiar with stories that leave you hanging that leave you wanting more. Uh, The loose ends weren't tied up. Uh, The questions raised weren't answered. Certain characters uh, faded into the background without knowing where they end up. Where's that line, you ask? And so they lived happily ever after. Not all stories end the way we'd expect, but sometimes the way we expect the story to end clouds our understanding of the author's primary focus. We want the story to focus on what we we want the story to be about, when in fact the author's focus was elsewhere all along. Many people come to the end of Acts with a similar dilemma. For many, Luke ends the book in an unsatisfying way. Questions remain unanswered. Does Paul ever testify before Caesar? Did Paul ever get out of prison? If so, then what happened? What about Peter and the others? Does the church live happily ever after? Did Luke just run out of sources? Did he run out of time? Maybe he had a third volume, but we just can't find it. Such questions send people searching all over the place to fill in the details that Luke didn't tell us. 
In the process, though, perhaps they're overlooking Luke's primary focus. More importantly, perhaps the way they want it to end keeps them from seeing the Spirit's primary focus, which is Christ. I'll attempt to uh, present the full picture here under four headings. Our pattern, our message, our goal, and our confidence. So first, let's look at our pattern. Our pattern is suffering to bring others hope. Our pattern is suffering to bring others hope. Paul wastes no time. Three days after his arrival, he gathers the local Jewish leaders. And the words he shares become a fitting summary of what the last eight chapters have been about. He was delivered into the hands of Rome. Rome found him innocent. And yet the Jews continued accusing him falsely. And so to preserve the public integrity of the gospel... Paul appeals to Caesar. But notice Paul's approach in verse 19. Though I had no charge to bring against my nation. I mean, they've been doing him wrong again and again. Though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Paul didn't appeal to Caesar to get even with the Jews. Paul wasn't utilizing the state to attack Israel. Paul's not out for political revenge. Rather, verse 20, it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Since he encountered Jesus, Paul has been spreading the hope of Israel. Now, we'll explain that hope in just, in just a moment. For now, simply observe that Paul willingly wears the chain... To bring others hope. He wishes that he didn't have these chains. As he told Agrippa back in chapter 26. But if he must wear them to spread hope. If it's part of God's purpose in the path of obedience. Then he willingly embraces the suffering. And in doing so he follows in the footsteps of Jesus. Notice a few parallels here between Paul's, uh, uh, the, the portrait of Paul in Acts 28 and the portrait of Jesus from Luke's Gospel. Jesus was delivered. Same language that Luke uses in Acts about Paul. Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinful men. Paul was delivered into the hands of sinful men. Rome didn't find Jesus guilty. Rome didn't find Paul guilty. Rome wished to release Jesus. Rome wished to release Paul. The Jews objected to Jesus' release. The Jews objected to Paul's release. What's the point? Why would Luke focus on these details? Because followers of Jesus have lives that reflect Jesus that reflect Jesus' sufferings, that emulate the way of His cross. But there's something more here. There's one further parallel we cannot miss, miss, though though it has a crucial difference. In and through His sufferings, Jesus purchases the hope of Israel. In and through His sufferings, 
Paul proclaims the hope of Israel. Jesus purchased the hope of Israel through his sufferings. Paul proclaims the hope of Israel through his sufferings. Meaning the Lord's mission triumphs through the suffering of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus' people. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has designed his mission to triumph through a suffering church. And I don't mean suffering for suffering's sake, but suffering for Jesus' sake. Suffering for the glory of God's sake. Suffering that others might be happy in God's sake. How does Jesus put it in in John chapter 12, verse 24? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you want to see fruit? Do you want to see conversions? Do you want to see a vibrant, growing, healthy church? Do you want deeper joy? then we have to die. We have to die. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. How does John put it in Revelation 12, 11? The church conquers the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Paul is living that triumph over the dragon right here. That's how the church conquers. That's how we spread the hope of Israel. Through suffering in the path of obedience to the glory of God. America will feed you a different message. Avoid suffering at all costs. That's what our culture tells us. Fill your life with as many comforts as possible. And if it's not safe, don't do it or make sure you got a gun. That's not the New Testament pattern. If bringing others hope means suffering, treated like the scum of the earth, if it means looking like a fool to your boss and to your fellow employees and to your friends, we embrace that suffering to spread hope. That's our pattern. It's the way of the cross. It's suffering in the path of love to see others gain real hope. Some of you are discouraged right now. You pour yourself out for others. You sacrifice for their joy. You labor for their holiness. You support and you spend and you pray for others But yet you get little to nothing in return. In some cases, the return is more hurt and more ridicule and more betrayal. If that's you, can I say, beloved, the spirit of Jesus Christ rests upon you. You are following the pattern that is set forward by Jesus in the New Testament. It's not meaningless suffering God's mission triumphs through our Christ-like sacrifices to bring others hope. But what is this hope that we are bringing others? 
What is this hope of Israel that Paul speaks about here? That brings us to our second heading, our message. Our message is Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Our message is Jesus Christ and his kingdom. These leaders haven't heard about Paul, verse 21. But they have heard about Christianity, verse 22. They're skeptical about it, but they're open to some reasoning here. And so a great number of them gather and Paul teaches them all day, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them, it says, about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now note that Paul, that Paul is following Jesus in this too. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is risen and he spends 40 days with the disciples. It says, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And uh, after his resurrection in Luke 24, what does it say? That he, he was teaching them all things concerning himself from the law of Moses and from the prophets and from the Psalms. So Paul is imitating Jesus in this. In a nutshell, that's what the Old Testament is about here. Jesus and the kingdom of God. That's the hope of Israel. And it's your hope too, as we'll see soon enough. If I could summarize this for a minute. Numerous places in the Old Testament refer to God's kingship. Because he created all things, God is king over everything and everyone. In the beginning, Adam and Eve acknowledged God's rule. God even created them to image his rule. Their lives were to point to his glory as the true king as they lived on the earth and interacted with one another. But when tempted to rule their own lives, Adam and and Eve gave in and sin entered the world. Sin is rebellion against God's rule. And since that day, the nations have raged against God's kingship. Now, never does this mean that God lost control. He didn't get dethroned in the midst of all this. Quite the opposite. God actually proves his kingship by judging sin and condemning sin. He banishes humanity from his presence. He curses the world with disease and death. Confusion and chaos then wreck our relationships. God even promises to judge and exclude all evil from his creation one day. But there's also a complementary way... God proves his kingship in the Old Testament. And that's by redemption. Okay, God aims to establish his heavenly rule on earth, to bring peace to the chaos, to heal all that's broken, to replace the evil with good. A new reality on earth he was going to create. But even more amazing was that he was going to redeem a people to live in it. He wouldn't wipe out all the rebels, though he had the right and the power to do so. In mercy, he would save some and he would make them citizens of this of his new world order. So we get shadows of his kingdom that exist throughout the Old Testament. Wes has been talking to us about this in in uh, in the hermeneutics class 
about uh, the, the shadows of this kingdom in the, in the Old Testament. God prefiguring this kingdom with Noah and then with Abraham and then with Israel and then with David. But all these eras point forward to another. The ultimate kingdom hope was tied to only one who would reign on David's throne forever. With this king would come wisdom and might. With this king would come righteousness. With this king would come a divine reversal of the curse. The lame would leap like the deer. To encounter this king is to encounter the rule of God itself setting all things right in the world. That is Israel's hope. And that is the world's hope. That is the message of the Old Testament. That is their confident expectation, or at least it should have been. And then Jesus enters the picture. And the angel tells Mary that Jesus would be the one to take David's throne. And of his kingdom there would be no end. And Jesus preaches the kingdom of God. And as he's preaching the kingdom of God, what's he doing? He starts healing people and casting out demons and raising the dead to prove that his kingdom restores all that sin has ruined. The kingdom comes near because the king has arrived. But the way Jesus ends up establishing his kingdom is contrary to the way we thought he ought to. It wasn't through military power and royal pageantry as the Gospels reveal Jesus establishes God's kingdom by dying on a cross and then rising from the dead. It's his death and resurrection, it's through his death and resurrection that that God defeats the power of sin and death that dominate those he loves. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that makes rebels into citizens of his kingdom. Now, many Jews don't know it, but Jesus and his forever kingdom breaking into this present order is the hope of Israel. And that was Paul's message to them. He's taking the Old Testament and showing Jesus and the kingdom and how Jesus and the kingdom are fulfilling their hopes. This is what they've longed for. This is what the world longs for. And he's explaining it to them all day. That was Paul's message, and it is also our message. God builds his church on this message throughout Acts, and no other message. All throughout Acts, this message actually creates the church. As the message of Jesus and his kingdom is going out, the church is birthed. In this place, and in that place, and in this city, and in that town. It sustains the church, this message. This message shapes the church's attitudes and its generosity. It produces joy in the church. They are celebrating what has happened with Jesus and the kingdom. It keeps the church persevering through suffering and loss. It gives them hope in the face of death. Like when they lose Stephen, and when they lose Peter. I mean James. It even ensures the church will make it to the end. And thus we cannot shift away from the hope of this message. We cannot shift away from this hope. The culture tells us to put our hope in things besides Jesus and his kingdom. Hope in your own ability. Hope in your own works. Hope in your own goodness and your wisdom and in your strength. 
hope in your own intellect, hope in human progress and in political leaders, hope in self-actualization, hope in America, hope in new health programs and diets, hope in your 401k, hope in science to solve all of our problems, hope in social empowerment, hope in your spouse. Now, not all these are evil in and of themselves. And when rightly ordered under Jesus' lordship, some of them may even be used to advance his kingdom. The problem is when any one of them becomes substitutes for our hope in Jesus and his kingdom. How can you tell if you're trading Jesus and his kingdom for another hope? Whatever it is, if you were to lose that thing, would you feel like your whole world is coming apart? Whatever it is, if you were to lose that thing, if you were to lose your job, your reputation, your retirement, your spouse, your child, even your own intellect, would it mean all hope is lost for you? That's how you know. That's how you know if you're substituting another hope for Jesus, uh, substituting something else in place of Jesus and his kingdom. Listen, there are no substitutes to Jesus and his kingdom. Outside of Jesus and his kingdom, there is no other person, there is no other authority, there is no other position or possession or wisdom or wealth or love that turns rebels into children of God and makes the world right again. There's nothing else that lasts forever. There is nothing else that can provide enduring, eternal, and increasing joy in God. There's, there's, there's nothing, everything else fades away. Nothing else promises a new creation without tears. Nothing else brings true justice in the world. So our message must remain Jesus Christ and his kingdom. As it remained the apostles throughout the book of Acts. And may we never ever get over it as a church. Third, our goal. Our goal is to reach all peoples with the gospel. Our goal is to reach all peoples with the gospel, with this message of hope. Now, repeatedly, we've we've encountered a pattern in Paul's mission. Uh, He offers the kingdom to Jews first, and then when they largely reject it, he turns to the Gentiles. Not exclusively, but primarily. And that happens again here. He, He tries to convince the Jews about Jesus, some of them believe, others of them don't. And for those that don't, he proclaims a word of judgment. And then in verse 28, he turns to the Gentiles. They will listen. Now, we already know why he does this. Uh, He lays this out in chapter 13, verse 47. Uh, He's following the mission of the servant in Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, the Jews hold a privileged place in God's redemption story. But that same story includes God extending salvation beyond Israel to the nations. 
And he does this through a unique servant, who we know as Jesus Christ. But that extension, that extension beyond Israel to the nations actually happens in the face of Israel rejecting the servant. In other words, God's saving purpose wouldn't be hindered by Jewish unbelief, according to Isaiah 49. How would it not be hindered? Because it would become the occasion by which God brings the gospel to the nations. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what God says to the servant in Isaiah 49. We know that servant is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is now living out that mission through Paul. So the pattern of the servant facing Israel's unbelief and then extending God's salvation to the nations is playing out here in Paul. Or better, it plays out here when the risen Jesus acts through Paul. Only this time, Paul quotes another portion of Isaiah. Isaiah 6.10. You're familiar with this context. This is when Isaiah sees Yahweh enthroned and the seraphim crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And he is undone. God atones for his sin. And then he commissions him to take the word to Israel and they're going to have revivals and, and lots of people are going to flood in and everybody's going to believe mass conversions in Israel, right? Wrong. No, you're going to go to them, Isaiah. And you're going to preach what I tell you to preach and they're not going to listen to you. In fact, your word, Isaiah, will become the instrument I use to harden them even further. There will be a few. Talks about a root. Spring up, there will be a few, an elect remnant that do believe. But other than that, at large, your words are going to harden my people. Now, the New Testament uses this passage often to explain Jewish unbelief. Uh, so, very often in the Gospels, uh, in the face of Jewish unbelief, you'll find Jesus quoting it. He, uh, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he uses it to explain why he's speaking to them in parables. Uh, in John's Gospel, John chapter 12, he uses it to explain why the Jews aren't believing again. Um, in Romans 11.8, Paul uses it to, to, to explain why the Jews are hardened and the Gentiles are coming in. Uh, with, in each context, a little different emphases come out. Sometimes the divine agency of God and hardening people is coming out in the context. Uh, sometimes Isaiah's agency in proclaiming the word is, is the emphasis in the context. And at other times, the people's agency in disbelieving the word and rejecting that word is, in, uh, is the emphasis. In Matthew 13, uh, Jesus uses it to explain, again, why he speaks in parables. They're not for all to understand, he says. This is Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17. And he goes on to talk about how understanding in the heart only comes by a gracious act of God. That's why he says, blessed are you who hear. To you it has been given. 
Unless such grace is given, the heart remains dull, unable to respond to God's word the way it ought to. And for some Jews in Jesus' day, they didn't receive this grace. And so rather than believing, they hardened themselves against Jesus. The human heart will always react that way to Jesus apart from God's gracious initiative. And the same was happening here with Paul. He says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Why? Because this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they've closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now, any parent in here knows what it means for your child to hear you and for your child to hear you. Right? There are times when they hear you but it doesn't affect anything. And that's what's happening here. With these Jews, they're hearing Paul, they're hearing him spend all day explaining Jesus and the kingdom of God from the Old Testament, but it ain't affecting them. Why? Their heart is dull and callous and they're too thick-headed. If they turned to the Lord, God would in fact heal them. The kingdom would be theirs. But many of them could not. Do you see how this becomes a word of judgment? Your heart is too dull to believe. You're too thick-headed, just like your fathers were in Isaiah's day. Left to yourself, you are morally unable to love God and to love what He loves. Unless you cry to God for mercy, you won't be healed. God's word stands against you and will harden you further. But once again, we see that this Jewish belief doesn't thwart God's purpose. It becomes the occasion whereby God extends the hope of uh, of Israel to all nations. Why? They will listen, he says. They will listen. Not every single individual, of course. But multitudes beyond Israel will listen. By grace, they will listen. Is that not the whole thrust of Scripture? The whole thrust of Scripture is driving to this point in redemptive history. The Gentiles listening. The law in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The prophets, people who've never seen will see and those who've never heard will understand. The Psalms, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the nations sing and be glad. 
Revelation, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Romans 15, where Jesus comes to fulfill the promises given to the patriarchs and so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. They will listen. God has a people beyond Israel. Yes, it includes Jews still. The Jew believes today. Yes, they're included in the people of God. But God has a people beyond Israel. And he wants them reconciled to Jesus and enjoying his kingdom. They will listen just as his grace enabled the elect remnant to listen to Isaiah in Isaiah's day. There, the God's grace will enable the elect Gentiles to listen today. He will receive glory in saving them. They will listen. How does that compel you? How does that affect you? Don't you see? The nations will listen. Come on, people. Let's not be like like, uh, the Jews were here where they're hearing but not perceiving. They're seeing all this stuff happening before them, but they're not responding to it. God's saying the word that the, the time has come where the Gentiles will listen. You hear that? Don't leave this place without that affecting your movement to the Gentiles. And you're preaching to the Gentiles. They will listen. People in white settlement will listen. People on your street will listen. People at your school will listen. People in your family gatherings will listen. People down Las Vegas Trail will listen. Again, not necessarily every individual, but multitudes will listen. One person's unbelief shouldn't keep you from telling others. They will listen. Why do you live where you do? Why do you work where you do? Why has God placed you where he has? To bring the hope of Jesus Christ and his kingdom to all who will listen. The nations will listen. We know that because Jesus bought them and they're singing in Revelation 7. They're going to get there. How they get there? You. Telling them. So let's deliver the message. Isn't that a great confidence we get from them? They will listen. All right, I'm going to go tell them. I'm thankful for the example a number of you said in this. You know, Eric Nielsen sharing through his company, Boss Lighting. Gary Moore sharing with folks till midnight, what, Taco Cabana? Did I get that right, Gary? Yeah. We had a lot of... Yeah. You eat a lot of tacos and share Jesus. Yeah, I particularly like the way John Nichols. Where would you think you're going to go tomorrow if you die? That's good. John Nichols is with Gary, yeah, sharing at the Taco Cabana. It's good. Nate and Abby showing hospitality to those on their street. A couple of you sisters touching base with old college friends and taking them to lunch, praying for opportunities to share the hope of Christ. 
You are examples to us. The risen Jesus is advancing the gospel through you to fulfill the mission of Isaiah's servant. Just as Paul is. So let's follow them. You're not living where you are by accident. God God has you there to bring people the hope of Jesus and his kingdom. One way you can participate in that is by showing up next Sunday morning at 9.15 and help us write notes to encourage the teachers at West Elementary and seek to build more avenues where the gospel might advance. So 9.15, no discipleship hour next week. You can come, join us, and write a note. Last heading, our confidence. Our confidence is in the risen Lord Jesus to complete the mission. Our confidence is in the risen Lord Jesus to complete the mission. Notice the way Acts finishes. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without Now, this is the part that leaves people hanging. What happens to Paul? I mean, yeah, he goes on for two more years and preaches the kingdom of God, but what happens after that? Why didn't you tell us that, Luke? Why didn't you tell us about Caesar's trial? How does he die? What happens to the church? What happened to Peter, by the way? He just kind of faded out back there. Or do these questions miss the primary focus? I think they do. His aim from the outset was not to write a biography of the Apostle Paul. His aim at the outset was not to write a history of the church. His aim was to glorify the risen Lord Jesus. Acts is an account of the risen Lord Jesus advancing his unstoppable kingdom. And that's the primary focus which he began for Theophilus in chapter 1, verse 1. Do you remember it? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What does that mean about this book? (laughs) It's going to be about what Jesus kept doing. Through the church. That's why Paul kind of fades into the background. Because it's about Christ. It's no accident that Acts begins with Jesus' promise of the gospel spreading in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. And then Acts ends with the gospel of the kingdom advancing without hindrance. That's his primary focus. The progress of the gospel without hindrance. The unstoppable kingdom of the risen Lord Jesus. Paul may be chained to a soldier here, but the gospel isn't bound. That's his point. Why is the gospel not bound? Because the risen Lord Jesus ain't bound. Kings may lock him up, but the king of kings says, you ain't going to stop me. Therefore, give yourself to the gospel's progress and put all your confidence in the risen Lord Jesus to finish the mission. You can't do this work on your own.
You don't have the capacity to love others as they should be loved. You don't have the strength to persevere in the mission. It's easy to grow weary when care isn't reciprocated, isn't it? The fallen world often brings dark days and hard relationships. Various futilities will weaken us and cripple us and cause us grief and will bring us to the grave. We will all likely die before this mission is complete. But our confidence rests in Jesus to finish the work. That's why we give ourselves to it. He's going to finish the work. And it's going to be glorious. His kingdom will advance without hindrance. As we take the Lord's Supper today, would you keep that in mind? As you look back on what Jesus has done on our behalf, and we proclaim his death until he comes again in that kingdom. Ben, you want to lead us? This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.